Welcome to the BMO Road to Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bulls. Businesses have begun to turn their focus to the future beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, but the playbook of the past won't work in the future. In this series, we hear from experts across a variety of industries and professions that offer ideas on how leaders can address some of the critical facets of work and life that have and will continue to fundamentally change how businesses operate. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Road to Recovery, Expert Conversations. I am your host, Eric Bolts. Of all the disruptions the COVID-19 pandemic has caused, the immediate need to transition from a physical school environment to a virtual one was significant. Education systems that have been evolving to incorporate more technology into the classroom now had to rely on it to reach and educate their students. Parents became teachers and full-day caregivers, and this was a continued stressor that affected how they were able to do their jobs. My guests today have been at the forefront of these developments. Jeff Silber is a managing director covering K-12 and higher education for BMO. Kelly Richmond Pope, PhD, CPA, and Associate Professor at DePaul University. And Gina Jinneru, the Chief Learning Officer at BMO. Thank you all for joining me today. And for those of you watching on LinkedIn, we will be taking your questions live at the end of the stream. So comment with your questions below. So we're going to jump right into it. First question. How has the use of technology evolved in schools over the past 10 to 20 years? And I'm going to begin with Jeff. Thanks, uh, Eric, and uh, thank you again for having us. Appreciate it. So 10, 20 years ago, if you would have stepped foot inside a a K-12 classroom, it probably would have looked like what it looked like 100 years ago, where you had a teacher standing in front, maybe sitting in front, getting up once in a while to walk uh, right on a chalkboard, Students sitting at their desk, maybe once in a while interacting with the teacher, certainly not interacting with one another. The technology was there, but schools didn't have it and they weren't using it. You fast forward, um, the United States put in a program, something called E-Rate, where they spent billions of dollars to make sure that schools got access to the internet. I think 99% of public schools now have a fiber connection. So what you've seen is not only is the connection evolved, but you've also seen an improvement in hardware and software, again, a lot of it through the E-Rate program. Um, Textbooks are still being used, but they're being supplemented with real-time information. History is dynamic. If you want to watch the launching of a space shuttle live, you can do that with your classroom instead of reading about it. Supplemental learning, when we used to have the, the, the tear sheets in the math book, a lot of that is done on the computer. You've got something called adaptive learning where you can actually focus on a specific area if a student's having problems with fractions, he or she can keep on getting those problems until they mastered it. So what technology has done is education a lot more personalized and a lot more interactive. It's much different than it was when I was a kid, that's for sure. Yeah, myself included, Jeff. Uh, Thank you so much for that, Jeff. Kelly, how about yourself? You know, I think about my first uh, teaching days when I used to use um, the, the overhead projector and I thought I was high tech then. Um, so you've definitely seen the evolution of being able to Zoom or have uh, people Skype into your class from another time zone. 
So um, the evolution has be, has made the classroom far more dynamic. Um, I think that um, it's interesting to see the different generations trying to utilize the, the technology in the classroom. And I think what Jeff said is really, um, really important in the higher education space. The technology was there. We just didn't always use it. You know, we we love to lecture and walk around the classroom and hold our hold our hands at the podium. And so technology really can um, allow you to do some different things. So it's really made the classroom far more dynamic than it used to be even um, 15, 20 years ago when I taught started teaching as a graduate student. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I, even before we go to our next question, because we understand that's how it's impacted, obviously, the education environment. But before we do that, I want to point out again, if you are watching this live on LinkedIn, please post your questions. Please, we will get to them. Uh, so thank you so much for, uh, for that answer, Kelly. Um, Gina, this question is going to be for you, because what was that evolution like for how corporations evolved their learning programs? Um, thanks, Eric, and uh, excited to be here. You know, at BMO, we're, we're fortunate to have a corporate university called BMO IFL, or the Institute for Learning, and it opened uh, back in 1994, so we've had it for 26 years, and it's this tangible proof point of our investment in learning, but we started out in much the same way that Jeff and Kelly were saying, you know, focusing more on face-to-face -face classroom, more on formal classroom, and so we were about 80% in class and 20% distributed. And back in, you know, 25 years ago, that was, could be paper, could be, you know, very rudimentary e-learning. And over the last 25 years, we've really tried to shift to meet people where they are. So a lot more mobile, palm of your hand, learning anywhere, anytime. Um, we do about 20% now centralized classroom. And those are for the things that really matter most, where we're really needing to bring people together to interact and collaborate and connect and focusing in on the foundational skill building and more of the broad range of skills through other channels and really trying to be more adaptive, as Jeff was saying, and, and more virtual and digital, as, as Kelly was saying. So I think some of the trends we're seeing from a corporate perspective are very similar to what we're seeing in broader education. No. Gotcha. You you said a, a word there, Gina, that because uh, it's not just around virtual learning or just around education. I think we're a lot of us have been forced into this, and that word was adaptive. And going from you know eighty percent being face to face and twenty percent being vir uh, virtual, and now that's switching. Um, just for sake of context, we may have a lot of companies out there who aren't at that level, may have the technology, just haven't made the. I would say behavioral change that led that direction. You know, talk to us a little bit about was that a difficult transition, like from the human standpoint of making that change, not just the technological change. Um, it's a great question, Eric, and I think you know so much of it has to do with even changing our own mindsets and disrupting ourselves in the learning space. And so over the last few years, we've really focused on expanding our focus as a team. And so as we've brought new people into the team, it's not just the formal educators that we've had in, in our group. We've brought in more videographers, photographers, social media people, mm -hmm. graphic artists, musicians, etc. And so we have this really eclectic group of people who challenge the status quo, and they're able to bring their skills to tackle solutions in a very different way and also learn from each other. So we're able to practice what we preach and really try to encourage everybody within our own team to be learning 
new things every single day and to be pushing and challenging each other to create different experiences for our employees to make it easier for them to learn for their job, for their career, for their interests and for the future. And so I think starting with our own uh, disruption is so critical because it keeps us pushing forward and keeps us challenging what we're able to provide so that it's not the same old, same old. We really are trying to uh, create consumer quality experiences for people within the company and, and continuing to push the bounds so that people want to learn and not just need yeah. to learn. Well, thanks so much for that, Gina. I, I, Any time I hear a, uh, organizations go through that must change, even change for the positive. It, 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 I always want to know what was the mindset internally that allows those driving the change to be what I like to call inspired practitioners. Like we're not just talking about it, we're actually doing it ourselves as we bring everybody else with us. So that's great to hear that's what BMO did. Uh, question number three, uh, and I'm gonna begin this with Kelly. So in March, when schools abruptly closed, how did that impact educators? Well, I think it felt like um, jumping out of a plane at 15,000 feet and you didn't know if the parachute was going to open or not. That's how it felt. So um, it, depending on how you taught your class, you were either prepared or you were over the weekend trying to figure out how to prepare. Um, I think luckily for me, um, I've always taught my class for a virtual environment because I traveled a lot. And so um, I always wanted to make sure that I, I thought about that out of class experience. Um, but, you know, it was it was scary, you know, um, especially for um, some of my more um, seasoned faculty who might not embrace technology in the same way as um, some other faculty. Um, and even just today, um, we received an email from our president and provost saying, due to the rise of um, the number of coronavirus cases, most of our classes are going online because we had an option of um, various modalities. And now most everyone is going online. So if you were thinking that you were planning your class for a face-to-face -face environment and you found that, find out three weeks before that it's not, then we're back in that March. For me, it was March 13th. We're back in that feeling again. So I think if you always plan to be virtual, then to switch on to go face to face is an easier out way. So um, I started planning um, virtual. So when I got the email this morning, I was like, eh, OK, no problem, um, because you, you fooled me once, but you're not going to fool me twice. So I was prepared this time. So but I'm not sure if everyone took that approach. And, you know, if you notice the school districts around the country, if you are waiting for that determination to face and then the light switch goes off that you're going to go online, you're back in that scared mode again. So um, it'll be interesting. The fall may look very similar um, that the spring did, where it's this these emergency triage type teaching environments. But um, it's a scary place right now for educators. For those of you, thank you for those answers, Kelly. For those of you who are, again, on, on LinkedIn Live listening, we'd love to hear from you as well. So you please chime in and let us know how these things have impacted you. Um, and, uh, now I'd like to move that same question uh, over uh, to you, Jeff. I mean, when we talk about uh, the way these changes so abruptly impacted uh, educators, uh, if you would speak it from your perspective. Sure, and I'll focus on the uh, the K twelve area. 
Um, I'll, yeah, I liked uh, Kelly's analogy of the plane, you know, and jumping out at 15,000 feet. I think what you found uh, with a lot of K-12 teachers is that they were still packing up the car on the way to the airport. So they hadn't even gotten there yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, what I, I think a lot of, and, and there were some school districts that obviously better prepared than others, but for the most part, they were just trying to get to the finish line. They just wanted to get to the end of the school year using whatever they had, Zoom, Google, YouTube, Khan Academy, you name it. Just put something out there just to make sure that we can finish the school year and then we'll worry about it later. Uh, you know, there were a number of issues that schools and school districts found. Uh, first one was just student access to technology. I, I talked about the schools getting the fiber access, but I think only about 85 percent of U.S. households have Internet access. And even if you do have the Internet access, do you have um, the hardware uh, to, to access the Internet? You know, many families do not. And a lot of school districts had the money. They were providing laptops or iPads to students, but a lot of times there weren't enough and students had a share. So even, you know, if you had the hardware, you couldn't use it. And then bandwidth was another issue. Everybody was online. You were competing with your siblings and your parents who were probably working from home. N number two is probably just the faculty access to technology. I remember seeing a picture early on in the pandemic of a bunch of teachers in a Walmart parking lot sitting or standing around their cars accessing the hotspot, trying to teach their classes. Um, so that was difficult. And, you know, many teachers, uh, especially at the K-12 level, even if they were comfortable with technology, had never taught online. So that was a whole other experience for them. And then finally, you know, when in your introduction, you talked about the impact on parents. You know, that was crucial. I'll speak for myself. I'm not an educator. Um, I can't teach my kids. That's why I send them to school. Um, a lot of parents had to really supplement what teachers were doing and were really, uh, you know, uncomfortable and not prepared. So there were a lot of issues going on. I don't think anybody wants to go through that again. Uh, what you just said right there, Jeff, like the, the combined impact on so many people, uh, so accurate. I, I have a couple friends who are educators and uh, the number of thank you notes and well wishes and they receive from parents uh, were unbelievable because of the experience of now parents having to teach their own kids and realizing the difficulty of it. But one other thing you brought up around access, um, I've I saw stories, videos, and things as well as so many students going to, you know, hanging around an Apple store or hanging around any place that had Wi-Fi, uh, they were doing the same thing to get access. But because of the pandemic, it also didn't allow people to gather together, which also made the uh, learning experience very, very challenging. Uh, Gina, how about you when it comes to from a corporate standpoint and, and how you all even uh, went through this process for BEMA? Um, so some very similar themes, I think. But, you know, as a company, our first priority was the health and safety of our customers and our, and our employees. So that was where we focused first. Um, and we went from on March 13th, uh, we moved from having about 5,000 people who would typically work at home to having more than 30,000. So about a third of our workforce continued to be face to face with customers, um, either in our branches or working in call centers and so on, trying to make sure that we were supporting our customers through a really uncertain time. And uh, and for the people who ended up working at home, a lot of them had a really rapid transition into working at home, perhaps for the first time. So as we were trying to get technology enabled and, and trying to get people up to speed so they could work effectively at home while managing the situations with their families, while being, um, you know, a, an educator to their kids, etc. We tried to work through all of that as, as in, a, in the most humane way possible and, and human way possible. 
And when it came mm-hmm. to learning, you know, we, we had actually invested in a mobile platform a couple of years ago, and that enabled us to support and empower employees to learn, you know, whatever they wanted, whenever they needed uh, for their job, for their career, for their interests and for the future. And so we actually, when we shut down the corporate university and, and shut down all face-to-face learning uh, in that time frame, we, we started putting more and more content up or directing people into some of the offerings that were available in a virtual and digital way. And some of our first priority were things like resilience and well-being and helping people actually manage through, uh, you know, some of the challenges and uncertainty in life um, as we were going through the early days of the pandemic. Um, You know, we have continued to put content um, at people's fingertips around the technology and tools that they need to use remotely or at work, Um, you know, being able to use MS Teams effectively, et cetera. And we Mm -hmm. focused on trying to build virtual leadership capability, because I think we're really relying on leaders more than ever to be able to engage their their workforce. And those could be people in the office, at home, or, you know, in, in any of a number of locations. And I think that puts a very different focus on leaders um, in how they show up, in how they communicate, in how they collaborate, and, and really be able to help people feel part of a team through this period of uncertainty. So I think, you know, some of the actual focus on learning was very similar to what Kelly and Jeff said, but we really started from that people first place of of being able to focus on health, safety, and support. Gina, uh, you have something going through my mind where we've put a lot of responsibility on leaders in leading through this change, Um, but you just said something that, uh, really hit me, which is even learning how to lead virtually, let alone leading already, but it, but to have to lead virtually, especially when you naturally gravitate to a lot of face to face, uh, you know, all those kind of dynamics. And, and, and there, that's a, that's a competency in itself that's new, I think, for many people who haven't been practicing it. So, uh, uh, that, that, that is a great insight. Um, before we get to this question number four, again, if you're watching on LinkedIn Live, please send in your questions or comments. We will get to those. Uh, but question number four uh, leads into uh, uh, what I like to say, uh, our new reality, right? This new reality, this, this sense that we're going to go back to the way things were, or I can just wait out this change uh, we're going through and go back to the way it was. I, I think it's a dangerous mindset to have. So question number four asks, Now that we're through the initial shock, and as we start another school year, how will curricula need to be developed for this fall and beyond? And I want to begin with you, Jeff. All right, great. So I think most districts, once we got through that finish line, have spent the past few months evaluating what happened and trying to plan as best possible for the upcoming fall. Um, The most important part is redesigning your curricula for flexibility. You know, a a lot of schools are still deciding, as Kelly had mentioned, you know, even as of latest today, probably even next week, what they're planning on doing for the fall. You might start out in class. God forbid there's an outbreak. You've got to send all the kids home to quarantine for a couple weeks and you bring them back. You need to be flexible. And, And I know, you know, it's not that easy but you've got to design for as much flexibility as possible. And that's probably the most important thing that the school districts are doing right now. Number two, as I mentioned before about the access to technology, I think we need better planning. Um, I've seen, and I know in my district, uh, our local library 
is opening up to make sure that students that don't have internet access, don't have the bandwidth, can come to the library where they're physically in the library, standing outside in the parking lot, making sure that they get access. So I think that's important as well. And I think we've had time to plan a little bit better, so that should go a little bit smoother. Um, faculty training, as I mentioned earlier, um, we've seen a, a lot of districts proactive training faculty, um, finding those that have experience not only in the K-12 sector, but even folks like Kelly in the post-secondary sector, teaching K-12 faculty how to teach online. So I think the teachers themselves hopefully will be better prepared. And, and last but certainly not least, parents, again, you know, we're not expected to be teachers, but we are expected to help. And it's mm. vital that, that parents are involved with everything going on, knowing what's happening, knowing what respect, what's expected from them as well to make sure that the kids get the best education possible. Great, Jeff. Great. Um, again, thank you for those who are watching live. And I just want to uh, remind you, remember, you can ask questions. I will get to those momentarily. Uh, but when you mention flexibility, uh, how do you design that flexibility? And so, Kelly, I want to begin that with you. Well, I think um, adding to a little bit to what Jeff said, I think when you think about curriculum design, too, um, less is really in my class at least, I'm focusing a little less on the discipline and focusing a lot more on the engagement aspect of the assignments, because if you're not engaged, you're not learning. And so I think before um, in face-to-face, -face, I might be focused on, okay, are they going to get these accounting concepts? Because eventually they're going to sit for the CPA exam. I'm really now focusing on curriculum that is um, engaging because the engagement factor leads to retention. So I think when you focus on engagement, you quite naturally start focused on flexibility. You know, um, if a person has um, a, doesn't have internet access or has a low um, internet access speed, then maybe using video might be a challenge for some. So I think when you think about um, how we're moving forward, we're learning a lot more about our, our class, our learners. For example, I start my class with a one-on-one -on -one with each of my students. I send out a survey, getting information. Do you have a laptop? Do you have a tablet? Do you only have a phone? Do you have Wi-Fi at home? These are questions I probably never would ask. I even ask, um, has anyone in your family suffered from COVID? What are you dealing with? Because I need to understand the mental health of the learner so that I can develop curriculum that sort of wraps around whatever their current situation is. So I think that as an educator, it is pulling on our heartstrings in a different way because before we could just focus on the discipline, focus on the content, but now we have to focus on the human, the human being in a different way that we didn't do before. So when I think about um, the advances I've made, I feel like I'm a much better educator now due to the pandemic because I had to be more reflective and the way that I was communicating, not only with my students, but um, online, my online presence for my class as well. Oh, Kelly, thank you so much. I'm going to, um, uh, what I like about what you just said is uh, we've definitely shifted to a both and world and a head and heart. No longer, we're just reaching ahead. So thank you. The uh, last piece of this question is gonna be for Gina. And then afterwards, we're gonna go into some Q&A. So Gina, uh, you answered the same question. How do you design for that flexibility? And I agree with so much of what Kelly said, where it really is about the whole person and being able to support people where they are and, and in what they're working through. 
Um, in, in terms of the actual um, learning content, um, you know, I think about it in terms of the what and the how. So increasingly, I think we've had more and more items that are almost like Lego blocks, where we're creating very small bursts of things that can be assembled and reassembled in different ways to meet the needs of the business and of our employees. And so we can be much more nimble in how we're able to quickly respond. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that includes... Um, you know, ebooks and animated shorts and video and short burst classes and, and uh, different micro and nano learning, et cetera, making sure more things are mobile, that they can be played on a phone, not just on a computer and, and really being able to be super flexible there. But the how we design it, um, I talked a little bit about the change in composition, but also we've done increasingly more agile teams where we're actually rapidly designing things with business and with employees as partners to co-design so that we're testing, experimenting, learning. It's not like you, you know, wait six months to do a big reveal of a program. Mm -hmm. We're actually continually testing things so that we're able to much more quickly get things into people's hands when they need them so that they're getting Mm -hmm. rapid support so they can do their jobs, they can meet customers' needs um, and feel well supported and be able to have the results that they need. And so I think we've changed really everything about how we think about learning and how we think about supporting the business and our customers. Gina, there is a, uh, it just, just, this just triggered. There's a quote by, you know, years ago by a gentleman named was Eric Hoffer. And his quote simply said, in times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned, the know-it-alls, are beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists, right? And it just feels like we're in that place. Um, but what really moves me is how many of the, you know, especially with the three of you, who are on the side of driving content, on the side of delivering, but you're also so engaged in the learning process yourselves, which is, I just love that. Like your, your, your learning is happening simultaneously as you guys are teaching and, and growing. And, and it really helps that, what I like to call that cycle of learn, practice, teach, learn, practice, teach. It just continues to cycle around. So uh, that, that, is, that is right on. Oh, I wanna go into some Q&A for, with some questions that uh, we've been able to receive. In our, our, and I see one right here. Our first question comes from Samantha. And she asks, what can companies do to substitute for in-person orientations for new employees who may be starting in a virtual setting? And Gina, I'm going to uh, ask that question to you. Hopefully it, it was clear enough. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Samantha. It's, it's such a great question. And, you know, one of the most important things in getting somebody on board, whether they are new to the company or new to role or returning from a leave, is helping to make sure that they feel connected to to the team, to the company, to the work that they're doing. And, and so that cultural aspect of it is actually one of the most important. And so in many ways, that starts with the leader. So as we've been pivoting to more virtual onboarding, we've actually really focused in on helping to make sure that leaders have best practices, have tips, have tools to be able to understand how to get people up to speed with the technology that they need, because so much of the work now is, is remote and technology enabled, to make sure that they have have consistent practices and consistent um, ideas about how to regularly engage with, communicate with um, the people who are in their team, and really helping 
those um, those new employees be able to have regular practices and regular connections with the broader team so that they feel part of something bigger than than what they might see every single day as they are working from their home or whether they are new to uh, a socially distanced office. And so we've really started with leaders. We've also started with taking inventory quickly of what do we have? So what can be repurposed fast? And where do we need to wrap mm. new context and, and new virtual elements around it? So in, in some cases, it's actually about being really nimble and being very human and equipping leaders to do the right things, to engage people, and then to be able to start to layer on those, those additional resources and experiences to help people feel part of the company and part of our purpose, part of our vision and, and doing the right things for our customers. Uh, thank you so much, Gina. Uh, again, we would love to hear from you. Uh, those who are watching right now, let us know what you think. Um, there has been uh, a few uh, additional questions, I, and, and I think this is one that probably impacts a, a, a lot of us, which is there are still a lot of the questions about when people can actually go back to physical spaces. Uh, so if that's going on, how do you teach through that uncertainty? Like, how do you teach through it? And uh, I'm going to begin with uh, Kelly and Gina because they actually work with students and, and, and employees in that process. So, Kelly, uh, let me begin that question with you. Well, one of the things that I did um, is really um, adopt a, a point of view initially. So we're going to be virtual. We're going to be virtual for 10 weeks and or we're going to be virtual. We're going to be virtual for five weeks. And I really tried not to bring up we could be changing. I'm not sure. I tried not to enter, introduce that type of uncertainty so that they could feel that they could adapt or, or, or get situated around a common theme. We're going to be online for 10 weeks and this is what it's going to be like. I think sometimes you can um, introduce fear when when change comes because we no one really likes to change. So that was one of the things that I found was really helpful to teach through the pandemic. Um, is just saying, this is how it's going to be. I also um, ensured them that this is the same class I would offer if it was face-to-face. -face. And so we have speakers. Now the speakers just zoom in. Um, I'm accessible. Here's my email. Here's my phone number. I'm, I'm available on the weekend or not. I would, I would let them know um, how they could reach me. And so I wanted to assure them that um, it was the same class, you know, just a different format with the same content and the same accessibility to me. And so really what I'm saying is I'm, I'm a big proponent of um, synchronous learning because I think you can stay connected with people in a better way and wrap your arms around them if you need to, if you're with them alongside in the learning process, as opposed to always um, the asynchronous way. So um, that was just one of my strategies is just really um, just making sure that they were certain that this is what this is how it's going to be for the next 10 weeks. And so get ready and we're not going to change. And so um, I really appreciate the um, the leadership at DePaul for making a decision at the beginning before classes started so that people could adapt and adjust as opposed to what you um, said, Eric, when some schools may have students on campus and then we have to send everybody home. That creates a level of panic. And so I appreciate our leadership in, in yeah. having the forward view of saying we are going to start this way. And so we can plan because it's hard to plan. It's hard to plan when you don't know. 
Yeah, that that is so good, Kelly. I, I it's it, I, I said it's hard to be confident and confused at the same time. So that level of clarity Absolutely. you are able to really establish really really makes a difference. Thank you for that, Kelly. Gina, how about yourself? Uh, I think very similar. You know, as our as our business leaders were making decisions about what needed to happen in the company to navigate through the pandemic, we really needed from a learning standpoint to be able to support, the, you know, those decisions. So whichever way the company was going, whichever way our employees needed to go, we had to respond and support that. And like Kelly was saying, you know, once you you make a decision once you chart a course, you don't want to add additional uncertainty through the learning process. So it's making sure that people know what they can rely on and what you're able to provide. So some things right out of the gate, we said, you know, we're pausing on this. Um, other things we would give, um, you know, clear dates or, or indications on when key decisions would be made around programs. And when it came mm-hmm. to the actual delivery itself, uh, like Kelly was saying, some things work really well in a synchronous environment and, and are appropriately placed in a classroom. But with the classroom not available, uh, we had to make decisions about the things where we would pivot quickly to create virtual offerings so that we could create just enough, just in time, so people people could build the skills that they needed to do their job. And then there were some things that we'd always wanted to transition out of a classroom. And I think... um, you know, the, the CEO of Microsoft uh, talked about how many years we've advanced in only a number of weeks in technology. And I think that gave us the opening to be able to pivot quickly and actually um, create true virtual solutions and focus on things that may never go back to uh, to the classroom space, and they shouldn't. And so we've been able to be much more deliberate in, in where we path things and what kinds of experiences we're able to create for people to meet them where they are and also meet them where the business needs uh, need to be because of our customers. Well, that, that's that's right on. Not only finding opportunity out of difficulty, but I like the question you all would, would function with is how do we not only survive this change, but how do we thrive through it, which is a different question when you're looking for solutions. We do have a question that just came in, uh, and this is uh, one last question, where, and I want to make sure we get it. Our next question comes from Obi, and the question is, how does an organization like BMO deal with evaluating employee performance in view of the demands on parents to be educators? How does BMO identify and evaluate uh, evaluate employees with little kids and the reduced productivity due to these demands? Wow, great question. And uh, and I, uh, you, you can answer, Gina. You can answer, Jeff and, and and Kelly. Even if it's a different setting, I would love to hear your thoughts around that. And that's how we uh, wrap up. Um, you know, it's such a great question, and. Our first focus was making sure people had the support that they needed. So we provided, you know, additional uh, days off if people needed them to be able to manage through the uncertainty of uh, trying to get their kids set up and and trying to focus on education or to focus on elder care or whatever it is that people might have needed in in those uh, those days of uncertainty. Um, I think we've also, through uh, you know, virtual team meetings and and so much of the work, I think there's been a real shift in seeing the human side of people. So you have a lot more or, you know, kids who enter into the frames during video uh, video meetings and you have, you know, pets walking across desks in front of the screen. And, and that's okay. I think it actually helps us see everyone more as humans and, and as people and really seeing them in their home environment. And that's great, actually. Um, and I think, you know, as we've moved along, I think 
one of our focus on, on virtual leadership capability has been around managing to objectives. So, you know, mm. it doesn't matter as much exactly when people do the work that they need to be doing. So we need to provide the support for them to be able to manage their family and manage their personal situation. But if, you know, the best time for them to be doing something might be 10 o'clock at night to be, to be able to meet a deliverable, that's fine. If you're managing to outcomes, you're not managing to, uh, you know, sort of seat time. I think that opens up a lot more um, opportunity for people to find the rhythm and find the opportunities that work for them with their families and their own personal situation. And then, you know, more than anything, we need to continue to be flexible in this environment because it, there's still a lot of uncertainty. And we need to make sure that we're setting people up for success to do their work well um, so that they can meet the needs of our customers who are going through the same kinds of uncertainty, too. Oh, thank you, Gina. And because of time, what I want to do here, you guys can either answer the question, but more importantly, if you just want to leave a little summary, Jeff, just a thought you may want to leave uh, with the audience as well as you, Kelly, and then uh, go ahead and close it off. So, Jeff, I, I'll begin that with you. Yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, dealing with uncertainty. And I was talking to a district administrator last week, and he basically said, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. And I'm optimistic that last spring was the worst and hopefully it gets a little less worse as we go forward and we do whatever we can to, to kind of get through the pandemic. Thank you. And Kel? You know, I was thinking about the question you just asked uh, Gina about the evaluation process. And, I, and I, I'm still, I'm optimistic. I really don't know the answer to that because I wonder if um, people allow you a certain bandwidth of the, the dog or the cat or the, the crying baby. But then at evaluation time, it's like, well, did you get it done? Did you figure out how to handle that? Did you figure out how to manage that? Because you still have a call. I don't know. You know, it, it'll be interesting um, to see where we end up. And I use my um, teaching evaluations that happened. And, you know, when I think about how I was evaluated, um, students would still say, I like the class, but I would have preferred for it to be face to face. Well, I don't have any control over if the pandemic happens or not. So, you know, it just made me think that we still have a level of um, maybe we're not all being realistic about the way we evaluate where we're living and how we're living. So, you know, I hope people are able to take that our circumstances into their evaluation when people are when employers are being evaluated or when faculty are being evaluated and even when students are being evaluated, because, you know, now they have more demand. So. I don't know. Maybe on our next call, we'll we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to thank you. Uh, you know, first of all, thank you to everyone who's watching right now, uh, who, who watched this episode of Road to Recovery around expert conversations. I'm really, really grateful to our experts here for uh, being so candid, vulnerable, and and, and open with uh, all of us. Uh, I do love the mindset of uh, it, this of this transition of being flexible, uh, valuing, in some cases, productivity over presence, which means more concern with the result versus how we get it, because it has to change with the time for living in. Uh, so I, I must acknowledge that we had a lot of good questions, but due to time, uh, we were not able to get to all of them. So if, over time, if you can visit bmo.com forward slash expert conversations, 
that is bmo.com forward slash expert conversations for great additional information. We'll be very grateful. So once again, thank you. I am honored to be your host uh, uh, with going over these expert conversations and also learning from these wonderful experts we had today. So with that being said, look forward to seeing you all next time. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Don't forget to visit bmo.com forward slash expert conversations. That's bmo.com forward slash expert conversations to watch videos with our experts and hear more insights from BMO. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Inc. and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.